We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Looking through architecture and design magazines, it's clear there's a lot of beautiful work being produced out there, such as houses, workplaces, schools and public buildings. But there are architecture projects being produced with briefs, functions and end users that aren't always a major consideration in an architecture project. These projects might be for people in need, people without housing, or even criminals. These projects might be in significant public areas, in communities with strong political representation, or in national forests. The Australian Human Rights Commission describes shelter as a basic human need, and most architects believe that architecture is for everyone, even in some of the most difficult social and environmental contexts. Over the next four episodes, we're going to be speaking with built environment professionals about some of these empathetic projects and how they approach the design of building typologies that are politically or ethically charged. Our guest in this episode is Sarah Paddock from Total Space Design, based in South Australia. Sarah shares how she became a specialist in the design of security architecture, working on buildings that include prisons, what considerations go into the design for criminals and the staff that monitor them, and how prison design has evolved to increase the efficacy of what these buildings are meant to achieve. I'll now hand over to Renata Gabara, who is an Imagine representative based in South Australia. Let's jump in. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Hearing Architecture. My name is Renata and today I'm going to be your host. Today's topic is how do architects approach the design of a building typology that is politically or ethically charged. And to discuss this topic, I have joining me Sarah Paddock, architect and principal at Total Space Design. Sarah has brought experience in security architecture, having worked on this field for almost 30 years. And in 2010, she conducted a research project about mother and baby accommodation in secure facilities. She has worked on projects in a number of secure facilities, not only in South Australia, but in other parts of the country as well, and also has been involved in the juvenile justice sector. Hi, Sarah. It's really great to have you here. I'm really excited to talk to you about such thought-provoking subject as uh, corrections and secure architecture. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So I think we can start from the beginning and start by asking you how you came across this sector and how you joined this field. Yes, so it was quite by chance. When I left university, I was lucky enough to secure employment with what was the public buildings department at the time. So they had a small design office uh, who were responsible for sort of all the minor works projects in government buildings. And I think probably being the new girl in the office, I got given a job that nobody else wanted, which was out at the Yatla Labor Prison doing a project out there. Mm -hmm. And as it happened, I really enjoyed it. And from then I was sort of the corrections expert in the office, (laughs) just because no one else wanted to do it, I think. So basically was able to work in all the prisons across South Australia. There's nine facilities in, in South Australia, so... Just gradually build up experience from there so it was yeah it wasn't chosen it was something uh-huh. that just happened and I enjoyed it it was interesting yeah. 
And at the time when you had never worked with that before, you had little experience, was there someone, an architect that you could like, you look up to? Early on in that part of my, uh, sort of the very beginning stages of my career, I was really learning as I was going and, and that was with everything I was doing then. It was one of those jobs where I really did get thrown in the deep end as, as a young architect. I was surrounded by people with lots of, of experience and we really just, you know, worked problems out from the ground up and a lot, mm -hmm. of, a lot of detailing and corrections can be a bit like that. You, you've sort of got criteria that you have to work with and, and you, you have to come up with fairly unique solutions because it's not a standard field. Probably the first person who I got a, a real boost from from a career perspective was just some of the people in the, the actual correctional services sector. So there were some very experienced sort of project officers and, and people who were interested in design, um, in particular a man called Bruce Farquhar who I still catch up with and he's retired now. And architecturally, uh, Simon Thompson from Thompson Rossi was working in that sector as well as I progressed and, and he was a great inspiration to me. He did some fantastic work up at Mobilong Prison. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a subject like we were speaking before. It's a subject that usually don't don't get a lot of attention. You mentioned yourself that it's not, it's not the typology that will win awards in, in architecture and what do you think could be done to change the scenario a little bit so that it gets the interest from grads, from uh, young architects and emerging architects? Yeah, look, I think that's a, a really interesting question because, yeah, obviously traditionally it's, it's been one of those areas of, of architecture and design that hasn't had, a, hasn't had a lot of funding for a start or certainly not a lot of funding to produce you know, interesting buildings, it, it's tended to, you know, you, you spend the money on, on very functional and, um, you know, other sort of aspects of the build, I suppose. But I do think that's changing in the industry as, and, you know, we'll probably talk about it a bit more, as, as people realise the importance of actually providing better environments for prisoners during the course of their incarceration and the, the impact that can have on, on them and, and how it can contribute to their rehabilitation. So I'd liken it now to um, I can see that the buildings that are being produced by, you know, some of the, the bigger firms and the, the real leaders in the market are up there with, you know, educational facilities and, you know, health facilities because essentially a prison is a little microcosm of society. It's mm -hmm. got a hospital, it's got an education area, it's got housing, you know, it's uh -huh. got a kitchen. So it's, it's got all those different building types and I think the industry and the sector is realising that the better quality design and architecture that you provide, um, the better programs you can run, the, the better outcomes you have with the, the people who are working and, and being incarcerated there. So, you know, it, it might be that as time goes on, you know, people are seeing better architecture and that will encourage people to, to be interested in it. Yeah, because there's this broadly dis discussed in architecture in general how different elements can can impact someone's behaviour. So I would assume that this is even more true in corrections. So what are the elements that you have to pay attention to that other architects that have, that have no experience in the field would be surprised? <laughs> yeah, I suppose that the things that, yeah, you, you probably wouldn't 
immediately think of there's there's issues like not making things a climbing point you know so when you're designing a building it's extremely important to think about how easy it might be for someone to climb up um, or obviously more slightly more sobering things like making sure that, that bedrooms and accommodation don't have opportunities for ligature points, you know, hanging points because mm-hmm. they need to be safe. There's the obvious ones of, of durability and security. Um, you know, how do you design a window that's, you know, not full of steel and bars that actually is safe, you know, because what we're constantly trying to do is is move away from sort of ugly elements of the building that scream this is a prison and make it more normalised, but how do you do that without creating a risk that someone can break out? And the, over the years and, and the anecdotes and stories I've heard about what prisoners will do to try and escape um, mm-hmm. are fascinating. Can share? <laughs> oh, well, the, the, one that, um, the one that just recently in a bedroom or a cell, is that's the most critical area because that's where people are by themselves for the longest period of time. Mm-hmm. So out in day rooms and, and in the other areas, they're, they're not there for a long period of time, but in, in their, their cells or their bedrooms, they're there for a long period of time and it might be only them and one other person. So they're the critical areas where things can happen. So just recently, smoking was banned in prisons um, mm-hmm. a couple of years ago and now all of a sudden the prisoners are making cigarettes out of tea leaves and little you know paper that they take out of books in the library and then they light them by creating a current across the two points of a GPO so oh, really dangerous like they yes. can kill themselves <laughs> so there's that kind of thing and then the other thing is using toothbrushes melting the ends of toothbrushes to sort of create not a screwdriver head but a head that will unscrew a security screw oh. so they melt it make the mold of the so there's yeah. just stuff that you just think that's amazing how that they could do that. Yeah, how smart. Lots of time, lots of time, lots of ingenuity. You know, there's lots of very smart people, very talented people who, who get locked up for other reasons and, uh, yeah, they come up with some incredible ideas about how to to, uh, to cause mischief and escape. Yes. And, yeah. So th- those kind of things are probably the interesting little sidelines. I mean, I, I find the other aspects of it more interesting, the, like you say, the ways that, the design and the, the architecture can actually have a positive impact on people's behaviour and, and also their rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's not so much about trying to outsmart them and uh, predict this kind of behaviours, which I think it's impossible. It's more about trying to give them an atmosphere that will block this kind of thinking before they even happen because it's actually changing their behaviour, like we were saying before. Yeah, look, I think there's there's probably, you know, 90% of people in prison would probably never try to escape, you know. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's interesting. We, we, and particularly in the female prison sector, you know, 99.9% of women would probably never try to escape. Mm-hmm. There's never been an escape from a women's prison in South Australia. So, you know, it, it's funny. We, we make all these design decisions based on the, the worst-case scenario, so what we, we really try and look at when, when we're designing is really thinking about, you know, what is necessary in terms of that sort of security and durability level and coming back back down to really being able to focus on the things that we know are important for creating a, a humane and sort of therapeutic environment. So it's, it's easy to get hung up on the, you know, the worst-case scenario and, and do all your designing to cope for the worst possible you know, most dangerous, most destructive or whatever prisoner. 
but that is obviously then really counterproductive to all the other good things that we mm-hmm. want to do, and that's for the majority of prisoners within the system. Across the system, there are lots of different needs and requirements to, to sort of try and create a, a, the type of accommodation you need to accommodate all different types of people. So that, that when I talk about things like that, that's a very small percentage mm-hmm. of, of people, as is, you know, people who are violent or at, at risk of self-harm. You know, they're the extremes that we're dealing with. The, the vast majority of people in prison don't have had those sort of really destructive behaviours. So they're really the people that we want to try and focus on in terms of creating environments that, that try and make sure that those people don't re-offend when they leave mm-hmm. because the community has to remember that most people are only in prison for a short period of time, you know, two to three years, even less sometimes. So they're coming back out into the community. They're not locked away forever. They're not just kept away forever. So the community needs to understand that we've got a responsibility to actually ensure that when they do come back out into the community, they're going to be able to, to reintegrate and, and start their lives again and be a useful, functioning member of the community. So going back to what you were you know, asking about how do people, why would people get interested in, in this type of architecture, I think it's a, it's a socially responsible thing that an architect can do because it's about being a socially responsible member of the community and, and really encouraging a better and safer community. It's in all our best interests for people who are incarcerated, that they're able to come back out and reintegrate into the community. So I see it as being synonymous with a, you know, a career in health architecture or you know, education. It's, it's a really important field that you can be involved in. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes you know, we, we focus on the sort of unusual aspects of it or the, the strangeness of it because it is. There are lots of weird and strange things about it, but mm-hmm. ultimately it's, it's just about creating really good environments so that people can heal and educate and, you know, learn and you know, get their lives back on track. Yeah, I think as architects, we are conveyors of change and I think that that's where our responsibilities lie and if someone can help with change, it's us. Yeah. And what would you say from the strategies that you, that you use and that you try to implement, can you name which ones are proven to be the most effective ones in terms of rehabilitation? Yeah, that, that's a really interesting one. And certainly in South Australia, our, our justice sort of sector and our, prison, our prisons are starting to really think much more carefully about that rehabilitation aspect of incarceration. There was a period sort of maybe 10 or 15 years ago where politically it was all about law and order and there was mandatory sentencing and three strikes and you're out kind of laws mm-hmm. and rack em, pack em and stack em kind of things. You know, it was this real, real sort of politically charged idea that we just, you know, if someone commits a crime, they just go to prison, you know, and it was all about that. Whereas what that created was significant rise in bed, you know, bed requirements, you know, numbers of people in prison, and that's just, that's no good for anyone. It's really expensive to keep people in prison, you know. Mm-hmm. As a tax burden on us, it is much cheaper to keep people out of prison. So that, that attitude has, has started changing and it's now about getting that rate of reoffending down and trying to reduce our prison numbers. And there are lots of different ways that the Department for Correctional Services is looking at doing that and obviously one aspect of that is the facilities that they have. And we know that there's, there's a number of things that do have a sort of a direct relationship with the likelihood of someone reoffending 
when they, right. they leave prison. So the, the three main ones are that they maintain their connections with their family while they're in prison. So while you're in prison that you don't lose touch with your family and you, you know, you're, you're able to maintain those family connections. That's a really important one. The second one, and it's, it's really obvious, is that they have employment when they leave. You know, so you come out of prison if you were not skilled when you went to prison, you come out of prison with some skills and you, you have something that will, will allow you to become employed. And the third thing that's really important is that, that when you leave prison, you have some form of stable accommodation. So, you know, none of that's particularly surprising. The other thing that's starting to become more sort of, I suppose, data-driven and, and research backed up by research is the idea or the, the understanding that particularly in the women's sector, um, the vast majority of people who come into prison are victims of trauma themselves. So, you know, we're talking sort of 80% type levels. Most people who come to prison, and it's, it's potentially the same in the men's, perhaps not quite so high, are victims of trauma themselves. They probably have some sort of mental, you know, illness or condition as a result of that trauma or they, they have, you know, psychological, psychosocial issues that they have to deal with. A lot of people who come into prison, you know, have chronic health conditions, you know, so, so all these things tie into uh, potentially a, an offending path so that the people in prison are, are, have all these different characteristics. And then, of course, you know, there's the Aboriginal population who are, you know, severely overrepresented in the prison sector and, of course, they have undoubtedly a history of trauma, you know, they've got a history of generational trauma just simply because of their family's history and dispossession, etc. And and then they are obviously more highly represented in, you know, numbers for, for people with, with chronic illnesses and and they have way too much contact with the justice system from a very early early age. So there's all those issues as well that, that mean, okay, well the environment that we have to put these people into if they are already traumatised, potentially have mental problems, you know, to make it then a brutal environment or a, an environment where you're making things worse, mm-hmm. <laughs> how can we expect them, one, to, to behave the way we want them to behave, two, to engage in programs, you know, to actually be engaging in programs, and three, to actually not not reoffend when they come back out. You know, they just do their time and they come and they haven't changed at all and they've possibly got worse, you know, because prisons made them worse. So there was this sort of grand realisation that, you know, we needed to actually provide better accommodation, better programs. So architecturally there's obviously lots of things that we can do to make an environment more therapeutic, you know, more healing, more conducive to to people's having a better wellbeing and it's an environment where you're able to get better sleep, you know, mm-hmm. an environment where you've got good access to to natural light and, and you can see the, the sun go down and come up and, you know, so yeah. you, that, all those sorts of things that make an environment good for you and me are exactly the same, you know, an environment where there's not excessive noise and clattering because there's, there's lots of, you know, data and, and research about how, you know, incessant noise and, and create raise stress levels and, you know, create sort of startle responses that, you know, your cortisol levels go, all, all those sorts of things, you know, an, an environment where the temperature is not overly hot or cold, you know, so that you're, you're not constantly feeling under temperature stress. Mm-hmm. So if we can get all those little things, start getting them all right, and that's what we should be doing in any architecture, so I'm not, you know, I'm not saying anything that's any different to a school, but then you add in a layer of trying to give people agency. So you're locking them up 
but you want to try and still give them some sense of agency over their own lives. So how do you do that? You might try and create small opportunities for choice. So you might say within a big living area, you know, you've got a big living space, you've got 60 people in a wing and how can you provide anyone agency in that space? Well, maybe you provide four different types of seating. So at least I can choose to go to a particular area or use a particular type of seating. I can choose something. And it might be something quite small, but the more little opportunities we can provide in the environment, you know, can I open my own window? Can I adjust the ventilation in my own bedroom rather than having someone else say to me, it's going to be set at this, it's going to open at this time. Can I turn on my light in my own bedroom, you know, in my own cell? So, again, it's, it's all these little things that you can add up and the more agency you can provide people with, the more opportunity for choices, the more access to all those things that, you know, we know make a space livable and good, then they're more likely to be happier or their, their levels of well-being are more likely to be higher, in which case they're going to have a better feeling of self-esteem, they're going to be more likely to engage in their education, they're going to be more, you know, less likely to bite the guy's head off across the, the table when he pisses mm. them off, you know, so there'll be less conflict. If there's less conflict, then the areas are less noisy, you know, people feel safer. If people feel safer, then they're less likely to arc up and cause problems. So you can see how all these little factors tie in and start bringing the danger, the, you know, the noise, the level of energy in a in a unit where you've got, you know, large numbers of, of people trying to live together. It's a full-on um, effect. Yeah. yeah. So the way I look at it is that if we can make little changes in 20 different areas, that adds up to a whole lot, you know, and we might not be able to, to do everything in every job. You know, you might not be able to achieve all of that in a refurbishment of a, a building or, a, you know, even in a new job. But if you can do it better than, you know, you would have otherwise it's going to be a better environment. And then, of course, you start adding things in like just beauty. You just try and add nice things in because that's nice, you yeah. know. And if I'm a prisoner and I see that someone's actually made an effort to provide me with a nice mural up on top of a wall, all of a sudden that says, well, I'm worth something mm-hmm. as opposed to if I've, if I've been provided with nothing that's nice, if everything in my environment just says to me, you're dangerous, you're probably going to break things, we don't trust you, you know, what am I going to think? I'm going to think, oh, yeah, well, I'm dangerous, no one trusts me, you know. Yeah. I'm gonna, you know, so it's, it's, it's all those sorts of things that we all know, but now what we're seeing, particularly in the South Australian sector where we've had a whole heap of pretty terrible accommodation and now gradually we're upgrading it, we're actually starting to see positive results and, and people saying that the design and the architecture is actually affecting how they mm-hmm. engage and how they, I mean, the, the engagement in programs and behaviour is a huge thing. As I say, if you can work on people's trauma and, you know, addictions and, and all those sort of behaviours that are contributing to their offending lifestyle, then that's a really good start. But you have to have them engaged and you have to build trust and you have to, you know, they have to be able to sleep well so they can come front up to class and they have to, you know, feel good about themselves to actually start changing and, and addressing those offending behaviours. So it's it's all, all linked. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Uh, mm. I was 
actually fascinated, fascinated. I, I think you would see it in my face also. Because it's things that uh, after you say it, it's obvious, but mm. until you say it, it's not. Yeah, of course, if a nice environment changes how we go about things outside of prison, of course, it's the same. They're human beings. Yeah, they're human beings as well. And I think there's also a factor, and that's one of the things that make corrections a taboo, is people tend to think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think people tend to think that people in prison don't deserve any better. So if they are there, they deserve to be punished in the worst ways possible. So how will people support the idea of uh, security facilities being actually a nicer place? Nice. Yeah, no, um, you're, you're absolutely right. And that is a, a very common response. And it's, it's interesting. It's common amongst the corrections community itself. So, you know, officers and, and that will, I'll be involved in a project and, and officers will give me feedback, you know, and won't say, this is too nice for them, you know, they don't deserve it kind of thing. And it's like, yeah, okay, fine. But, like, what I was saying to you before about these people are members of the community. They're members of the community that have offended for some reason. And I would argue that the vast majority of people who commit offences for which we put people in prison for are probably committing those offences for you know, whether it's socioeconomic reasons, um, addiction, you know, whatever, things that are probably caused by society, mm-hmm. you know, that's not all-encompassing. So they're in prison probably because society's let them down in some way. Anyway, right. we've agreed they get incarcerated for a set period of time. You know, we have laws that we all agree to. Yeah, okay, you get incarcerated for that period of time. If we acknowledge that it's really expensive to keep people in prison, right, that we mm-hmm. actually don't really want people to go to prison, we would be better off... One, dealing with the shitty society that made it such that people commit lots of crimes and get addicted to drugs and whatever. That's one way Mm -hmm. that we can try and deal with it. The other way is to say, okay, we're going to incarcerate you for a period of time because, you know, clearly you're you're messing up our community in some way, but we don't want to make you worse when you're in there. So that's a starting point. So if people could really see and really live in a prison one of our older prisons, you know, for a week, they would see how that environment, it's more than just taking away my liberty, it's actually punishing me in other ways. It's punishing Mm -hmm. me by affecting my mental health, it's punishing me probably physically because, Mm -hmm. you know, know, I haven't got enough access to exercise so I'm probably going to get unhealthier. You know, up until about two years ago, people were allowed to smoke in prison. So if I went to prison being a non-smoker, I would be surrounded by smokers so I would probably get sick. The food that was being served in prisons was terrible, so most women who go into prison will end up putting on kilos while they're in, they're in prison, so they, their health gets worse. Mm-hmm. So do we honestly think as a society that as well as locking them up and saying you're only allowed to see your children once a week for an hour, as well as saying you have to go to bed at a certain time, get up at a certain time, do these things that I tell you, as well as having to wear horrible clothes that you haven't chosen and sleep on a mattress that is 10 centimetres thick, as well as having to sleep in a room with a stranger that you don't know who's also an offender. As well as all of that, (laughs) we want to treat you badly as well. Yeah. Then I don't think you're thinking it through. I don't think the community's thinking it through if they say that that's right. We should be trying to make these people 
you know, deal with their offending behaviours, you know, acknowledge that, that they might have a drug and alcohol addiction, that they might be suffering from trauma, that they might have, you know, unhealthy relationship examples and advice or whatever, you know, focus on that so that when they come out, they're actually useful members of the community and they're not going to re-offend because otherwise if they re-offend, they're going to be stealing from your house or they're going to be driving a car across the road and, and killing someone you love, you know. Yeah. It doesn't make sense to say that we should provide environments that are harsh and punitive over and above just denying someone their freedom. So that would be my dinner party. Yeah, <laughs> to someone who's it's a pretty strong argument. I think it's thinking through is is so powerful because yeah, I don't think people think it through when they say that they deserve to be punished in the worst way possible. And, I, and again, it comes back to this sort of having this idea of who, who is someone who's incarcerated, you know. Mm-hmm. Television has them as, you know, serial killers and murderers and, you know, the, the vast majority of people who are incarcerated are there because they've got a drug addiction, particularly women, and I, I tend to work mainly in the women's sector, so I, I tend to talk more about women. of women in in prison have suffered some sort of trauma themselves. So whether that's sexual abuse as a child, domestic abuse, you know, know, a violent relationship, whatever it is, they're not there because they're bad people. Mm -hmm. Bad stuff has happened to them. You know, they've done some things that have been, they potentially have had to do to get out of a, a bad situation, you know. And it's, it, it cycles, you know, it, it just builds. And so, yeah, I, I, I find it really um, powerful to think about how they got to the point. Why were they offending in the first place? The argument, lots of people would argue that we, we lock too many people up. Should we lock someone up for committing a non-violent crime? Are they, are they a real danger to society? If it's a non-violent crime, are they really a danger to society? Why are we locking them up? We're locking them up to punish them. I get that. But are there other ways that we can punish them that wouldn't require us to lock them up and break up their families? Because, you know, 80% of women in prison are mothers. Yes. So we're not just punishing the mother, we're punishing the children, and the children clearly don't deserve to be punished. Yeah. Uh, Surely there are other ways. I mean, there are people who will argue that we should just get rid of prisons, we shouldn't have them, we should be able to deal with it better. And the Scandinavian That's a very controversial. Uh, it is, oh, and I wouldn't subscribe to it, but um, I'd be out of a job if I did. <laughs> no, but um, it's interesting to note that in the Scandinavian prison systems and in, in those countries, they only incarcerate people that we would call medium security prisoners. So all, all of the prisoners that we would call our low security prisoners, yeah. they don't put them into prison ever. So their prisons, their low security prisons have got people who've committed bad crimes, violent crimes, whereas our low security prisons are fine defaulters and repeat non-violent burglaries or whatever, you know, they're drug-related crimes or whatever. The Scandinavian system don't even put those people into prisons. They deal with the problems of why those people were offending at a societal level. Right, preventing the crimes to happen. Yeah, so having a fairer fairer welfare system, you know, maybe even a... A living wage might cut a lot of crime, you know, because if people, if we had a living wage and people weren't needing to, to steal or, or come up with other ways to, yeah. to get money, or then maybe that would cut a lot of crime, particularly with women. If, if society's attitude to women was a lot better and we could deal with domestic violence and create an environment where our society didn't have such a, you know, horrific 
um, attitude to women and, and that would probably result in people in prison going down because, you know, women wouldn't be forced into difficult situations where they had to commit crime to get out of a relationship and men wouldn't be committing domestic violence crimes and they wouldn't be going to prison. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> maybe if we could just get that. It's a lot, it's a lot, of, a lot of things that, have, that will have to change first. So it's a, such a big picture, right? Yeah, it is And you mentioned the Scandinavian uh, security system. And do you see it as a reference for Australia in terms of uh, architecture and designing security facilities? Yeah, definitely. There's there's lots of really great things that we can we can take from the lessons that the Scandinavian countries have learned, and one of them is the the concept of normalisation, and that's something that, that we've started to adopt, and and that comes back to that feeling of agency. So providing as much of a normalised lifestyle as you can in a prison system. So there's there's probably two main reasons why you would do that. One is is to give that person that sense of agency and, and you know choices, and you know I can do my laundry. I can cook my own food, you know, I get up and I go to work and I come home and I, you try and create an environment that encourages a normalised sort of lifestyle, I suppose, as much as is possible. But the second reason for that being a good idea is that, you know, people who are in prison for, you know, an extended period of time, you know, three to five years or whatever, if you provide them with an environment where every day their food is just handed to them and every day they're their clothes get laundered because, you know, they just send them off to the laundry or whatever, where they're told what time to get up and when to go to sleep and they're told when they're supposed to exercise and they're told uh, when to go to education and, and they're just spoon-fed sort of rote learning education. When they come out, they've lost all their skills. Mm-hmm. They've become institutionalised. So straight away they're looking for someone else to tell them how to live their life, what to do. To look after them. Yeah, to look after them. So, you know, and and then there's even the longer term, you know, where, you know, someone who's who's, um, been in prison for an extended period of time, you know, who doesn't know how to use a a smartphone or has never, you know, used the internet. You know, so if you don't provide all those facilities within a a prison, if you don't provide access to the internet and computers and, and things that we all just completely take for granted to try and come out and get a job, to try and come out and just even live, of course that person's going to struggle, you know. So the argument that, you know, they shouldn't have access to this, they shouldn't have access to that, they shouldn't provide them with, with facilities, you know, to keep themselves healthy or whatever, it just doesn't wash because if we don't do that, then they'll come back out and they'll reoffend and it'll be worse for yeah. everybody. And if we take the Scandinavian uh, security system as an example outside of Australia, in Australia... Where do you think we have the best approach happening at the moment? Do you think South Australia is an example to the other states or uh, do we have to look up to another state? Yeah, look, I think South Australia really holds its own. So there's a couple of ways in which we do. So we now have an extremely good um, and robust home detention system. Mm-hmm. So what I was saying before about you know not throwing everyone into prison but in punishing them in, in different ways... We now have a lot more options to not send people to prison. So in our, our justice system has, has changed and we've got a very robust home um, detention system. So that's where you, you serve your sentence under certain conditions um, that relate to um, how far you can go from your home and you have an electronic bracelet. 
mm-hmm. which is monitored. So it's an um, electronic monitoring system, which gives judges much more flexibility in being able to say, well, your crime is nonviolent, you know, you've got two children, it would be better if you could serve your sentence at home, much less damaging, and that's great. So we have a very robust system. We have quite a large home detention system, which is working really well. So that's one way in which South Australia is doing really well. South Australia's recidivism rate is is one of the lower ones in the country. So generally recidivism rate, so the likelihood of re-offending, sit at around 40%. South Australia's is, is more like 30 to 35 depending on what cohort you're looking at, what group you're looking at. So South Australia's recidivism rates are in the right direction. In Scandinavia, at some of their more successful facilities, they've managed to get down to sort of 20% recidivism. So right. they're seeing really good results in providing better environments and more humane environments. So South Australia is in, in a phase where they're really focusing much more on that rehabilitation aspect. They're focusing much more on that period of time when someone's just left prison. So they're, they're being really conscious of that idea of, you know, getting a job, getting stable accommodation, reconnecting with family because they know that that's important. So, you know, not just saying, well, your sentence is complete, gone, you're not our problem anymore. They're actually being much more mindful of, of how they can, you know, be more supportive in, in that area because they know that, that that sort of six months, six to 12 months after you've finished your sentence is the most critical time where you're going to, undo all the good work that you've done yeah. in prison. So the design of secure architecture is really a piece of the puzzle, but a very important one, but it's such a vast subject where every every single piece is equally important, basically, is how to prevent those people to commit crimes or get sent to prison, and then in prison, how to treat them so that they don't they don't go back to society not knowing how to live in society yeah, anymore. Yeah, not reintegrating. Yeah. yeah. And you were granted a scholarship. When was that again? 2009, 2010. 2010, yeah. It was called the Catherine Helen Pence Memorial Scholarship. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more how that came about and what you what sort of studies you conducted? So South Australia actually started to plan for a new prison. Mm-hmm. They were going to build a new prison up at Murray Bridge and um, went through the whole public-private partnership process. And I was on one of the teams. And I, I think in 2009 it just got shelved. Like it was all ready to go and then it just got shelved. And I remember being really just, you know, disappointed on a number of levels why. And I, I saw this advert or, you know, article about the Catherine Helen Spence Scholarship. And so Catherine Helen Spence was a very prominent sort of feminist and, and social worker in the early 1800s. And she was a, an absolute advocate for women and children. And so when she died, a scholarship was created in her name and it's awarded to a woman between the ages of 26 and 46, I think, 20 and 46, I think, um, to undertake a, a research study into an area that would benefit women and children. So I think I saw that advertised and I thought, right, I'm going to have a go at that. And my, my particular area of interest at that time was in South Australia, we didn't have a, a residential parenting program in our women's prison. So we didn't have a program where mothers and babies could be together during 
the incarceration of the mother. And, and so I thought, right, I'm going to do a study on this and I'm going to look at how we can do it. And so that was my focus. I thought, right, I'm going to, going mm-hmm. to go for this scholarship. And, and luckily enough, I, I was successful. And hence I, I worked at sort of planning this study tool where I looked at 18 different facilities across Australia and the world. So I looked at the best sort of examples of residential parenting programs across Australia and then also um, New Zealand. I went and looked at a few in New Zealand and then I headed overseas and I went to UK. I looked at a couple of facilities in the UK, in Norway and Sweden, uh, sorry, Denmark and Sweden. I went to Canada and I went to the US. So all in all, I, I looked at yeah, 18 different facilities, 18 different examples of, of residential parenting programs and, and women's prisons. So, mm-hmm. yeah, produced a, a big sort of paper based on that and, yeah, learned a lot. And we still haven't really got a residential parenting program <laughs> in uh, Adelaide. That correctional services, I, I, I talked to them a lot about it and they would argue that it's because we've got a good home detention program that right. they, they very rarely do women with young babies get incarcerated, most often the judges will will let them stay at home. home. But still, I'm sure there was a lot from those studies that you can and you have incorporated in your work since then. Yeah, I think what I have been able to and what, what is really important is that understanding of how to try and maintain family ties throughout mm-hmm. a prison sentence so that, one, how do you encourage uh, family and, and people to visit someone in prison? Mm-hmm. Because it's pretty confronting. You know, going to a prison, trying to arrange a visit is confronting. It's, it's a difficult thing to do. And if, and if the visit itself is restrictive, you know, if, if as a small child you have to sit on a seat and, or sit on mum or dad's lap for the entire visit and not play and mm-hmm. you can't hug daddy or you can't, you know, hug mummy because someone's scared you're going to pass drugs in their nappy or something, that's not a very satisfactory visit. And as the kids get older, they're not going to want to go back. So, you know, it's, it's about how do you create an environment where you can encourage that maintaining of the connection. So, you know, we look at different ways that it can happen, you know, the access to technology and funnily enough, COVID actually made the Department for Correctional Services be a lot more flexible about using video links as visits. Right. It's a, been an added sort of little silver lining of COVID, but allowing prisons to use iPads to visit, mm-hmm. you know, have video FaceTime visits with, with children. So have that more regular cycle because, you know, if you, you think uh, if, if you're a, a mother or a father and you can only see your children once a week for an hour, what kind of relationship can you build with them? You know, whereas if you could catch up with them for half an hour every night after school and you could say, how did that soccer match go yesterday? Mm-hmm. You know, had your home, I know you had some homework to do. Let's have a look at that now. Say good night. You know, so even just that ability to be able to have a, a chat every day for half an hour on a FaceTime, you can see how that would build to something. Um, so that a lot of that is about incorporating technology into the design, you know, trying to chip away at, concerns about security and, you know, the dangers that that might create in terms of, of security. And then the visits experience itself, you know, how do you create a meaningful visit? How do you engage with toddlers or five-year-olds or 15-year-olds? You know, how do you create a, a visiting environment that is useful and sustaining and good for both parties in a visits centre? Yeah. Know, how, how do you cope with aged infirm people, how do you get grandma to come in, how do you cope with that sort of thing, Indigenous families, you know, 
often they, they might have travelled from a long distance and, you know, and they might not have anywhere to stay and, you know, so there's all these sort of challenges with, with that side of things. So that's a really big part of, of any sort of new prison design thinking now is, is how you actually encourage visitors and, and connection with family because we all know that that's really important. Yeah, I think is probably the thing that they look forward to having back the most contact with their family. That's how how we know we're loved and they yeah. find something. Yeah, there was one really interesting facility I visited in Copenhagen. It was called the Engelsborg Family House, and it was it was a house. It was a two story house in quite a leafy suburb. And so a prisoner who had just finished their sentence and who needed to reconnect with their family. So, you know, they might have been away, might have been a, a, a father in a family who's been away for five years or whatever. So his kids have gone from age two to age seven or, you know, he's been away for longer and his little boy's grown up to become a teenager or whatever. Obviously quite confronting to have dad just reappear in the family. Mm-hmm. So they created this house where it could, it could house up to four or five families at a time and they could stay there for 12 months and they would live there together as a family and there might be three other families that were doing the same thing. So there might be three groups of children who could all talk to each other about the challenges of what was going on here. You know, Jesus, Dad's just come back from prison, blah, blah, blah. So it was this incredible facility and it had it had social workers and, and people you could talk to and but it was essentially, yeah, a big family house where the, the focus was to try and repair the family. So acknowledging that the family itself, the family unit, needed to be repaired mm-hmm. because Dad being incarcerated for X number of years had broken the family unit. And I thought that's a, that's a really cool concept because it, it acknowledges it was something that was broken and it needs to be fixed in all different ways. And it's not just Dad returning and opening the door up and everything's going to be okay, I'm fine. Yeah. What's damaged? What, what do we need to fix? So, yeah, that was a really interesting example of a, a facility where they were thinking actually. Little ideas like that we've started to try and incorporate into the thinking of, of how a prison might be set up. Right. If you could tell me a little bit about the hardest parts of working in the sector as an architect and what makes the delivery of quality of work really challenging? Yeah, it, uh, this was an interesting one. I, I don't think it's harder than any other sector to work in. You know, I, I one of my best friends is a high-end residential architect and the stories he tells me about some of his clients, <laughs> you know, every, I think every sector has challenges. That Probably the, the thing that I sort of butt up against the most, and again, it's not, it's not super hard, it's just something I try and manage, is is the bureaucracy of just working within government and within a highly regulated sector. So there's a lot of throwing ideas in knowing that half of them are going to get chucked out Mm -hmm. and you might get half of the other half through. So once you've sort of made your peace with that, that's okay. Like you end up just knowing that that's going to happen and and you're happy at, at what you do achieve. I think when I first started, I wanted to achieve everything, get everything across the line, and we used to get frustrated that, this stuff got knocked back, you know, that's a stupid idea, sorry, don't know what you're talking about, which was true um, and it's still true uh, because, you know, you're throwing ideas in into people who've worked in offices and, and people who've got a lot of experience. So I've sort of made my peace with that and I know now what's achievable and, and what's a win, you know, what, what it is to, to win and get something across the line with a project and, and be, be happy with that. So that that's a challenge. Um 
the, the challenges that you might think, you know, do I ever feel afraid when I go into a prison? Do I ever feel that it's just not a, a happy environment to work in? Yeah, sometimes I suppose it's not the nicest places to go to when we go, particularly when we're working in existing prisons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, there, there are times where you, you don't want to be where you are, but that's not the norm. And, and the, the benefits of meeting people and, and hearing stories and, you know, seeing the amazing things that can happen as a result of what you've been trying to do or more than makes up for yeah. any of that sort of negativity that you might come across. I think uh, it seems to me that you're in a constant paradox between following all those guidelines and at the same time trying to design something interesting and something that has beauty in it and that will provide a good experience and make some change. And if anything, that helps make you even more clever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, I'm more um, determined, maybe. <laughs> yeah, and think of solutions in a clever way, really, how to go around all those guidelines, those rules, and all those no's are ready to be said to you. Yeah, I, I think probably that, that happens in, I think people would say the same about working in health or, you know, it's, it's those mm-hmm. challenges that you, you try and make change, as you say. You, you're trying to change the way people do things or question why something. Corrections is a classic for, well, that's just the way we've always done it. Yeah. Know? And particularly now, you know, with technology, you know, having a significant impact on how prisons run, sometimes the way that things are done just is not relevant anymore. And, and until someone really questions it and goes, well, you know, there's really no reason why we need to do it that way anymore, sometimes it, it just doesn't happen because, you know, they know what works. And I'm sure it's the same with hospitals. You know, you don't get many chances to build expensive buildings like that. Yes. You know, so if you build a... A building that's probably going to be there for 50 to 100 years, you know. So things don't change very quickly. They're, they're very risk-averse in, in trying new things because they know they're going to have to live with it for for years and years. So, yeah, I, I acknowledge that and, and I've sort of made my peace with it now. <laughs> <laughs> and have you ever got any feedback from, from inmates or from staff about specific things that you did or designed that uh, actually they're really happy about or yeah. <laughs> some of the feedback with us. Yeah, I, do, I get lots of feedback because I go back and forth into the same facilities a fair bit. Because we, we predominantly did minor works in facilities, we were sort of going in and out of our existing facilities. So I would often get people, officers, you know, who'd been involved in the design process and then, you know, a year later you're back for something else and they'll quite happily tell you how terrible something was or how it didn't work <laughs> the way we thought it would and and it's it's all fine that's all good feedback you know I think as an architect you've got to be willing to to understand and say well yeah we we thought it was going to do this but it did that you know and really that's that's just all good feedback we did a, a whole series of upgrades of control rooms across mm-hmm. sort of, as I said we've got nine facilities we did, I think we did six control room upgrades over the course of sort of five years and when they were all done, we then went back and did post-occupancy evaluations of them. And that was really interesting to, to see the kind of things that did work, the kind of things that didn't work, why didn't they work, why did they work, um, that questioning of, you know, your, the assumptions you've made, you know, what changed. Sometimes it's something that was out of your control that changed that meant that things didn't work the way you wanted. I have had feedback from, from prisoners. We every now and then get the opportunity to talk to prisoners who are using the spaces that we designed and that's always really interesting. And it's interesting in the sense that the things that 
often we think are important are not important at all and the things that they complain about or really like surprise you. Yeah, like what, for example? So in the Adelaide Women's Prison Project, we've we've just actually done a big post-occupancy evaluation study of it. One of the main complaints was the thickness of the mattresses. That was not, not our call, but that was, you know, when asked about what do you like about this unit or what don't you like about it, heaps of people complained about the, the thickness of the mattresses, the fact that they weren't allowed to use the washing machines, again, which that was something that the prison brought in. So, yeah, little things that they, they never complain about the acoustics, you know. They haven't acknowledged that it's, it's quieter, but I think... I think it's a everyone good says it's calmer, you know. They'll say it in other ways. It's calmer in here. It's yeah. Quiet, you know, not quieter. They'll say it's it's calmer. Yeah. So it's always good to get feedback. And the the thing about the, the Adelaide Women's Prison Project was we had a group of ten female prisoners um, who actually worked on the construction team. So I was able to really, you know, spend a lot of time with those women and, and get to really know them and, and know them on a personal level, mm-hmm. um, which is really given me a lot of insight into, you know, quite a broad range of different women who are at the, at the women's prison. So that, that was, that's been my best opportunity to actually talk to, to people with lived experience, you know, because that, that's the big thing, actually talking to people who have lived in this environment and, and then lived in, in something that you've designed. So it's always really interesting to talk to them. So, yeah, I, I get plenty of feedback. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I imagine it must be really really interesting experience for you to hear all this the feedback. And like I said, about the acoustics, for example, I think it's good that there's not much feedback about it. Yeah, it's, it's just not because it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's working. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's really interesting. So in, in architecture, we often talk about energy efficiency, and this has become a bigger agenda with time. Do you think that this is happening in secure architecture as well, or is that is still true? far beyond no it definitely is and it, of course it has to it must what what's sort of been a bit of a you know a blocker in the past maybe is this sort of thing of security where people say well, we can't put solar panels on a roof because it's a security risk and we can't have the building facing in that direction because then they'll be looking out at the fence and we don't want them to look out over the car park or something you know so there's, there's often all these these other things that will trump what you want to try and do to, you know, have a better passively performing building or, you know, introduce photovoltaics or, or whatever, you know, there's this, they'll throw sort of security trump cards at you that mm-hmm. will say that you can't do it. So that's always going to be there, I think. But what is definitely happening now is that facilities are, are realising that there's opportunities for them to almost become self-sufficient. So with new prison design, as I said, you, you're designing a, a small city, really, you know, yes. a small village or whatever. So in most of, of the new prison projects now, there might be a solar farm associated with it. There might there'll be stormwater detention and there'll be opportunities for, you know, on-site power generation and, and things like that. So th- there are some bigger picture things that are, are starting to come into the architecture now. But there's always that balancing list of priorities that will mean that there are certain things that are always going to sort of come a bit higher on the list of priorities. But, no, it's, it's definitely um, in the same way that it is, is in other uh, jurisdictions becoming a lot more important. It's just that with old building stock, it's difficult as well. So when yeah. you have a, a facility that's got, you know, for example, the, the Yatla Labor prisoners still uses a cell block from the 1900s, you know, wow. um, big old stone cell block. 
has got their infirmary building that was built in the 60s. It's like an architectural history lesson of, of prison architecture. You know, it's, it's got all different types of, of prison architecture. How does it feel in that cell? Funnily enough, and I've heard anecdotally, I've heard that the prisoners actually quite like B Division because it's really simple and clear how it runs. Mm-hmm. Because it's just a standard cells with a corridor in the middle. I think it's like something out of a, an old movie. Right, yeah. yeah. It must be really interesting to actually see it. It's... It is, when, and, and you look at it in terms of other newer facilities. It's, again, there's a lot of other things that, that come into that, you know, in, in getting feedback from people about what they think of a, a facility. You know, sometimes it'll be because it's, it is very simple and organised and it has a really clear routine and so everybody's calmer in there because everyone knows what they're doing and, and there's not much interaction. And So all those things might add into the, the questions, do I feel safe, is it calm? Mm-hmm. Do I have control over my own stuff? You know, I've got people getting in and stealing my stuff or whatever. Those might be the things that they use to, to answer the question whether they like it. So it's, it's interesting to sometimes unpack why it is that people will say, yeah, no, I like being, I'd rather be in B Division than one of those new wings. And it might be those sort of answers that they feel safer there or that's their comfortable routine. Yeah, so, it's yeah, so interesting. It's, it's, it is interesting, yeah. Yeah. This has been great. It's been fascinating to learn learn more about it. There's so many so many aspects that we have no idea. Uh, not only from the architecture side of things, from the architectural aspects, but from the social aspects and how they are obviously interconnected. How architecture can impact on society and how the way that society is run will obviously impact on architecture as well. So it's been great to learn from you and have a better idea and more clear idea of how corrections architecture work. Thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. It's been lovely to talk to you. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our guest in this episode, Sarah Paddock from Total Space Design. Thank you so much for sharing your important work with security architecture. I'm sure we all want a day when prisons aren't needed, but while they are, it's great that you're taking care of it. Thank you so much, Sarah. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produce architecture podcasts hosted by modernist fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. And the Imagine production team was Renata Gabara, Chris Morley, Hannah Broughton and Lauren James. This interview was edited by Pete Carter at Pillow Fort Audio Productions. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. 
you should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.